The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Our message this morning is entitled, Exalted Unto Glory, and we will put on pause our series together through the book of 1 Timothy today for some thoughts that came to mind and were very impressed upon my mind yesterday, and I have been doing this long enough to know that as much as you might be enjoying the thought that you prepared all week, that you intend to share with the congregation, that if God impresses a thought upon your mind, you should go with the thought that is impressed upon your mind. And so I direct you this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, although we will take you to several other places today, Lord willing. Our thoughts today primarily deal with God's tendency to, in His wisdom, overrule the actions of men or strengthen and utilize weak things in order to accomplish his will and thereby glorify himself in the world. And as you notice, exalted unto glory being the title of today's message, our primary thought today is that when God thwarts the wisdom of this world, the things that men would esteem, And when God overrules the weakness of men and exalts men in their weakness through his strength, God glorifies himself. And so our thoughts today deal primarily with God's glorifying of himself, but the means through which he glorifies himself many times are the overruling of the wisdom of this world and the granting of great divine strength in our moments of weakness. I believe that this will be a very encouraging message for you, some very encouraging thoughts for you, especially as we deal with the issues of day-to-day life. We all have issues that we deal with. There's always another problem. There's always another issue. And when we deal with those issues, remembering that God is our God and He, even in our greatest moments of weakness, works to exalt Himself through granting us great faith or great victory. I believe that that will strengthen our hearts. Now, just a couple of preface thoughts, and I promise that today our preface won't be 45 minutes and our sermon will not be 15 minutes, but we'll, we'll reverse that, Lord willing, today. Just as a reminder, God is sovereign. That means that God does what He wants, when He wants, if He wants, how He wants. He does exactly what He wants to do at all times. Daniel 4.35 says that he works his will among the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? We know that if it is God's will to do something, God will always do that. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that ever happens pleases him. There are things in the world that occur that displease God. There are many things in the world that displease God. Sin displeases God. And so we know from the beginning of this thought that God is sovereign, that even though God is sovereign and He does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants, if He wants, sin never pleases Him. And so we know that there are things that occur in this world that do not please Him. This doesn't mean the concept of God's sovereignty, that He's pleased with everything. It doesn't mean that everything that ever occurs has been scripted by him from the foundation of the world. 
We know that God never has a hand in the wicked actions of men. God is not the author of sin. Sometimes it becomes popular as a fad for people who embrace the sovereignty of God to go that extra step into believing that everything that happens is scripted of God, but God never causes evil in the sense of sin and wickedness in the world. God is not the author of sin. Everyone say amen. God is not the author of wickedness. He's not the author of sin. The Bible is very clear. It attributes wickedness chiefly, initially, in the beginning, to Adam. The root of sin in the world is Adam. And as a co-conspirator with Adam, the root of sin in the world is also Satan. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning, according to John chapter 8. And so through Satan and through Adam, we have all of these terrible, terrible repercussions of sin. We live in a world that's cursed by sin because of the sin of Adam through the temptation, the leadership of Satan. And that's simply the fact of the matter. All sin in the world can be traced back to the transgression of Adam in the Garden of Eden as he was solicited with that sin by the wicked one. And so we, as we speak of God's sovereignty, he is sovereign, but it, that doesn't mean that everything that happens pleases him. But what it does mean is that he always works his will. God always works God's will. Sometimes you and I don't obey God's will. For instance, in the book of First Thessalonians, we learn that it is the will of God, even our sanctification, that we abstain from fornication. And then you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul says, It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you. Well, was it God's will for them to break God's will? You see the philosophical problems we run into when we leave what the Bible reveals and dabble in philosophy. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that everything that happens in this world is orchestrated of God, but it means that he is over it. And as we like to say, he causes things or he suffers things to be. He is the sovereign king, but he is not the first cause of everything in terms of sin and wickedness. He's not the direct cause, I should say, of sin and wickedness. As a simple but general rule, God glorifies himself in this world. If you're wondering why we are here, and I don't mean why we are here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church today, though that is, I hope, the reason. Why are we here? Why does mankind exist in this universe? Why does this planet exist? Why does the moon exist? Why does Mars exist? We celebrated the 50th anniversary of man walking on the moon this past week here and in Huntsville, Alabama, probably more than in any other city in the United States, we celebrated that. I have friends that played many concerts this week, many different functions this week. Friday night, I don't know if any of you went downtown to the celebration they had, but more than 10,000 people were there celebrating the fact that man walked upon the moon. I'm not very comfortable with 10,000 people dancing, by the way. It's the Baptist in me coming out. Rachel's like, you're a stick in the mud. <laughs> kind of standing there looking around. Isn't this interesting? But anyway, so we celebrated man walking on the moon. Why is the moon there? It's there to glorify God. Why are we here? We're here to glorify God. Everything that God created exists 
to bring him glory. If you, if you wonder, what is the meaning of life? The answer to that is simple, to glorify God. It's a very simple equation. As a rule, God glorifies himself in the world. Because of this, he often causes his agenda to triumph through unlikely means. He causes his agenda to triumph through unlikely means. And as we get to the end of our message today, Lord willing, we'll have time to mention just a few occurrence of this, occurrences of this in the world where God caused great victory and great triumph through things that you would not expect to be victorious. And the reason, again, that he does this is to glorify himself. Now, as we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to speak, first of all, of God's wisdom and his wisdom exalting itself over the conventional wisdom of this world, the wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world. And secondly, we want to look at God granting his strength to his people in their weakness, giving his strength in times of weakness. Suffice it to say, according to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God's wisdom and this world's wisdom are in direct opposition one to another. The wisdom of this world is the enemy of the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is in opposition to the wisdom of this world. They are, if you will, mutually exclusive. They are opposed to one another. They are as different as north and south in terms of the planet and magnetic forces. They're as distinct and different as hot and cold, black and white, good and evil, light and darkness, whatever opposite analogy you want to use. God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world are in direct opposition the one to another. God's wisdom, though it is scoffed at by the world, and this is something that we want to talk about, though it is scoffed at by the world, always has the ultimate victory over the world. Now, there are times when it doesn't look as if God's wisdom is winning the battle, but we know that ultimately, finally, God's wisdom always wins because God's wisdom is true. You see, God's wisdom is a direct derivative of God himself. And because it is a product of God, even a characteristic of God, his wisdom in the world springs from him and is as untouchable, unquenchable, victorious as God himself. It is eternal. It is a byproduct of his very being, his very nature. And so because of that, it will always be victorious. It is the single most attacked thing in the history of the world. And as we're leaving the preface, one could point you to the book of Romans chapter 1 and speak of this great conspiracy from the beginning of the world after sin to hold the truth in unrighteousness. And hold the truth there doesn't mean to embrace the truth, as in you holding to the truth of the Trinity or you holding to the truth of God's Word, but hold it means to suppress it. From the very beginning of time, there is a satanic conspiracy to suppress the truth. Sometimes it doesn't look like God's wisdom is winning the battle. But in the end, eventually, ultimately, God's wisdom always prevails. Sometimes it looks as if God's 
wisdom is outdated and forgotten about and lost. We, we've seen that in American history. God's wisdom is set aside in the sexual revolution, and they say that is old-fashioned. We don't need that. And a generation later, when people deal with addictions and disease and trouble and family issues that they can never recover from, you see that the wisdom of God declares itself righteous. When people cheat and steal and kill and destroy, in the moment of that, as the person gets away with robbing the bank, they may think that their wisdom has prevailed over God's wisdom of right and wrong morality. But eventually that catches up with them. If not in this life, it will in the life to come. God always has the final say. His wisdom will always be declared to be right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. This is a common theme in Paul's preaching. It is a common theme in Jesus' preaching. There are two types of people in the world, those with the ears to hear and the eyes to see, and those who lack the ears to hear and the eyes to see spiritual things. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, Why do you not hear my... Why do you not believe? Well, you, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. In John 10, Jesus tells him, you cannot hear because you have no ears to hear. You are what? You're of your father, the devil. And so we see very clearly the distinction between people who can hear and people who cannot hear. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul would speak about these two types of people as he says that we bear the savor of Christ, that God makes us to bear the savor of Christ in every place. As we publicly preach the word indiscriminately to those who are alive in Christ, we bear the savor of life itself. You smell like life. But to those who are dead in sin, we bear the savor of death unto death. You smell dead. What a putrid scent is that to our natural senses. What a terrible smell that is to smell decay and death. And that is the, in a metaphor, the scent that the gospel has to those who are dead in sin. Again, that's very fitting because what is the message of the gospel? The message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so to the living you smell as if you are alive. It is a message of life and freshness. To those who are dead in sin, it is literally the message, the odor, the aroma, the fragrance, the scent of death. Here in this verse, verse 18, we have that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. You have the two types of people and the two reactions to the word. It is foolishness to them that perish, and that will be a common theme throughout the remainder of this chapter. And of course, as we all know through experience, but we all know through the word of God, that the gospel is the power of God to those that are saved. And the word their power translates from the same word that is the root of the word dynamite in our language. It is explosive power. It is invigorating power. It is, it is not weak power. It isn't a little power. But this is the power of God to sanctify you, as Jesus said in John 17, to sanctify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. We can lead holy lives through the Word of God once God has saved us. And how do we do this? We do this through the gospel of Christ, the Word of God 
as it is preached to us every single week, as we study it throughout the week, it is God's power, His means in the world to strengthen us, to encourage us, to feed us. Where is the wise? Paul would ask. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Why would he say that? Look at verse 19. For it is written, and this is written in the book of Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I was listening on the way here, ironically enough, to a a message on the local Christian station, and I believe the man that was preaching was uh, Warren Wearsby from Illinois, but the statement that he was making was concerning the atheistic tendency to use the mind that they have to discard the concept of God, to reject God. And he asked them, well, where did you get your functioning mind in the conversation with the atheist he was speaking to? The very mind that you have to reason through day to day is because you have been given a mind by someone who created the mind. In other words, it takes a mind to have a mind. So you use your mind to look out into nature and say yes or no concerning whether or not you believe in creation. You have the mind to ponder it. And the statement that he said was, it takes, if it takes a mind to understand creation, it takes a mind to create creation. But the very fact that you have the mind to sit and process the reality in which we live is proof that there is a great creator. The point in saying that, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It doesn't matter how smart you and I think we are. The one who created your intellect is greater than you. The one who created the mind is smarter than you. And it, you know, hey, I'm a trumpet player. There's always a trumpet player that can play higher. There's always a car that can go faster. There's always someone in this world smarter than you, and there is one smarter than all of them, and that is God in glory. Scripture presents to us this concept over and over that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. There is one that created the intellect that you cherish and prize. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. When? Ultimately in his second coming. You see, when Jesus comes again, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, he descends from heaven, as we know through other epistles, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. But then God destroys the world with fire. Think of the monuments that men have built to their ingenuity, to the brilliance that God has given them. We are made in God's image, and that brings in with it fundamentally this attribute of intelligence and creativity, the ability to plan and design and invent and engineer. We can do this because we are made in God's image. But all of that, all of our monuments to our own brilliance are going to be burned in the fire in the presence of King Jesus at his second coming. I love to drive down 565 and pass the Space and Rocket Center and see the Space Shuttle and the Saturn V and all the smaller rockets, every bit of that is going to be obliterated when Jesus comes again. That's probably the pinnacle of human achievement, and they did it with the computer technology that equates to the calculator I had in high school. 
where they write the math down to plan the trip on paper. We act all smart today when really we have computers that are given to us by smart people that enable us to do smart people things. And I say that as a former land surveyor. You know, when George Washington was a land surveyor, he used trigonometry to determine where things would be. As Mr. Ben as a land surveyor, I use a computer because I can use a computer. I can't do the first bit of trigonometry. Anyway, we think we're really smart. What it really is is that we all have great technology. All of the monuments to human intelligence and ingenuity will be burned when King Jesus comes again. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now this is taken from the book of Isaiah chapter 29 and it's it's an interesting passage and portions of that will be very familiar to you as we read just a little bit of it. Therefore behold I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and their understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. This is where Paul quotes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now keep reading this. This is where it's going to get interesting to you. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord. God knows what you think. He certainly knows what you and I do. And their works are in the dark and say, Who seeth us and who knoweth us? You cannot escape the eyes of God in the cover of darkness or secrecy is a part of this message. But keep reading. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, He made me not? Or shall the thing framed say to him that framed it, He had no understanding? In other words, the concept that God will destroy the wisdom of this world and nothing that we do is truly in secret is built upon the theological premise of what? The sovereignty of God. Did you catch that? If you're a Bible reader and you've read Romans chapter 9, you know that the potter and the clay is used as an example of God's sovereignty. In other words, God does what He wants when He wants, and if He as the potter wanted to make clay figurines of any shape, out of any type of clay, simply because it pleased him, well, as the potter, he can do that. And so this concept that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise is built on, theologically, the concept of the sovereignty of God. Why is this so? Because God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. And so Paul asks, in reply to that, in verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Well, yes, He has. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. To the sophisticated Greek, the gospel was foolishness. To the Jew, the Jew sought after a sign. And many a wicked Jew would even come to Jesus and say, if, if you're really the Christ, tell us plainly, how long dost thou make us to doubt in John 10? They always sought after a sign. And he said, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Every time he healed the sick, every time he raised the dead, every time he gave sight to the blind, every time he gave hearing to those that were deaf, when he healed withered limbs, every bit of that 
Every bit of that attested to the fact that Jesus was divine. And Jesus told them that to that wicked generation, the only sign that they would receive is that of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Jesus would be buried. He would rise again victoriously, and that is the only sign that the wicked generation received. His children had signs all the time. They had signs every day. The works he did in his father's name bore witness of him, but to the wicked, they got that one sign that Jesus, whom they crucified, would rise again victorious over their best effort to put his life to an end and his church with it. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Let's look at the verse before that. God used the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. First of all, this doesn't mean that preaching is to be foolish. He's not saying that preachers should stand up and make a mockery of the word of God. It's not that they should act absurd as buffoons in the pulpit. Preaching is not to be performed in a foolish manner. By foolishness of preaching, he has reference to the perspective of the world. To the uncalled of this world, the preaching of the cross is to them as what? Foolishness. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And so foolishness of preaching doesn't mean that we stand up and appear as unlearned and ignorant men by the way that we say what we say. It's foolish because the world rejects it. They think what we're doing right now is foolishness. Now, to the Greek in the first century, in their sophisticated philosophical mindset for God to be made flesh was a foolish notion. Some of them, many of them believed in a deity, but they believed that he was in some realm, some spiritual realm, completely and eternally separated from the physical and that you have the the good spiritual and the evil physical, and some of them were dualists, some of them believed in an eternal universe. And so to say that we live in a world created by God, that we fell into sin, and that God entered this world, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered this world to bleed and die on a cross was absolutely absurd to them. It went against everything they believed philosophically. And it was foolishness. Now... This preaching that is considered by them to be foolishness, God uses to save them that believe. Notice God doesn't use the foolishness of preaching to save unbelievers, but them that believe. Until God saves you, it is what to you? Verse 18, foolishness. Once God quickens you, you have a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Faith is begotten in you. You can receive the gospel, and it has a delivering effect in your life. How so? Well, first of all, it delivers you from false religion, but it delivers you from sinful lifestyles. It delivers you from the penalty of sinful lifestyles. And if you notice that this is salvation to the believer, over and over in the life of a believer, they have salvation through the preaching of the gospel. If you came in here today and you were worried about things that you're, you've got going on in your life right now, by the end of this message, I hope you've been saved from that. Because as you hear about God and His sovereignty overruling this world, either the wisdom of this world or 
the afflictions of this world, and you learn about that, it strengthens your soul. But there's also great sanctification that comes in your life as you hear the word, and that has a saving effect on you as it relates to our practical daily sanctification. There's a saving effect in hearing the word of God. Again, we're not talking about the new birth. We're talking about from that moment on as we hear the word and it does strengthen us and sanctify us. There's deliverance for the child of God in the gospel and it is explosive power to deliver. It is explosive power to deliver. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. We've already commented on that. But under them which are called, under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Once God has called you, the gospel of Christ suddenly becomes God's power. It becomes God's wisdom. Now, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What does that mean? Does that mean that smart people are less likely to be born again than people who are of average or below average intelligence? No, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about people who are wise in the wisdom of this world and noble in the wisdom of this world. He's speaking of, in their day, many of the philosophers, in their day, many of the Pharisees, in our day, who could you plug into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26? Not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise men after the flesh. What sort of man? Well, let's think of a few. Perhaps Richard Dawkins, a very renowned atheist who has made a career. He's a professional atheist. That's what the man does. He is known for that. He writes books for that. That is how the man has made his money. He's a professional atheist. Apparently there is a job market for that. Stephen Hawking is another one. Charles Darwin. Charles Lyell. There are men all through the history of the world who have been wise and mighty after the wisdom of this world. And according to this passage, not many wise men after the flesh are called. They are that way because they are not called. Once God calls you, and I have reverence to the new birth, the calling of the Holy Spirit, suddenly you have a different perspective from the inside out, and the gospel is a message that touches you in a place that it could not touch you before. Once it was foolishness, now it is power. Once you laughed at it into absurdity, now it delivers you over and over and over again. Now let's begin to get into the meat of this passage for today. God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Why is it this way? Because God has so fixed it in his sovereignty that it is this way. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Now hold on to that thought because in another passage in a moment we'll speak about God giving strength in weakness. The base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. 
In other words, God many times is pleased to use weak things to destroy and overrule powerful enemies. Now the question then is, why does God do this? Look at verse 29. This is why we're here in this passage. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God uses unlikely means to accomplish His will in the world that no flesh should glory in His presence. Now, getting ahead of myself, think about some of the unlikely heroes of the Old Testament. Poor Gideon. Think about Gideon. Lord, give me a sign. Okay, Lord, give me another sign. Think about Sarah who laughed at the promise of God that she would bear seed in her old age. Think about the very fact that Abraham and Sarah were the ages that they were when God used them to bring Isaac into the world. Think about all of the unlikely vessels of God's purpose throughout the Word of God. Why does God do that? That no flesh should glory in His presence. One of the fundamental character attributes of our immutable God is that He is jealous. Now, by the way, I I once heard another wise of this world criticize God and pronounce that she became atheist when she was in church and heard the verse that God is a jealous God. I won't tell you who this person is, they're still living. Ask me in a few years. But she said, I just couldn't imagine the thought of a jealous God. Let me just ask you a question. Men, are you jealous of your wives? I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm a jealous person of my bride. You ladies, you're probably more jealous than I am. You want to see claws come out real quick? Want to see the facial expression on some ladies around here change? Let some strange woman, Proverbs 5, come flirting with your husband or messing with your kids. Jealousy is not always a sinful trait when it deals with the defense of something that, or someone that one loves. We ought to be jealous husbands, we ought to be jealous wives. God is a jealous God. He is jealous of His glory. It belongs exclusively to Him. He will not share it with another. He will not give it to another. This, by the way, is why salvation is all of God and none of us. Because if I got to glory and it was because of a decision I made, a prayer I prayed, a communion I took, a good work that I did, a faithfulness that I lived until death, if I got to heaven and it was because of my works, I could strut around in heaven, look at this great place, I'm here because of me. We're saved by His grace, number one, because it's the only thing that would work. Number two, that God gets every single bit of the glory that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and wisdom, excuse me, and redemption. Notice this, of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, 
Who's salvation attributed to there? God. Of Him we are in Christ Jesus, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I could really engage in some tangents about the show-offs that I know. And whether you want to watch professional sports or you want to watch professional trumpet players, they're both about as bad. Musicians love to show off. Artists love to show off. Professionals love to show off. Athletes love to show off. According as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You really want something worth glorying in? Glory in the Lord. Now, before turning to another passage about this, I want to just reflect back a moment about the foolish things confounding the wise. Consider the very nature of creation. Now, we often think about the fact as we think about creation, as we ponder on creation and the fingerprint of God all through our universe, we, we like to think of the eye and the mysterious way that it is fashioned together in such a way to read a portion, to take a portion of the electromagnetic spectrum and our brains translate the signal and it shows us everyone here in the room today. We think about the heart that pumps in our body and distributes the oxygenated blood, takes the old blood in and circulates it through our body. We think about the cell. We think about DNA. The programming behind why you are the way you are. I had a thought this past week. As I was sitting in the driveway watching the fireflies, the lightning bugs, begin to light up in our yard, how would an evolutionist explain the lightning bug? Chemicals decided to mix together to cause a bug to glow. I mean, think about it. I was watching them and I thought, you know, that's so simple. It's so base. The foolish things of the world confounding the wise. What purpose is there? What hand is there to guide it to know the chemicals that mix to create the reaction that causes it to literally glow like a light bulb? And there they are, flying around my yard, loving life. They all have different patterns, depending on the species of lightning bug, and they exist only to flash because it pleased God to create them. And how does that not simply demand his wisdom? How does it not confound the wisdom of the mighty? All of this is why when Paul came to the Corinthians, he came not with excellency of speech or with wisdom, which is to say philosophy, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. With the thought of God doing this in mind, let's just flip backwards to the book of Romans chapter 9. Paul would quote again from Isaiah 29 in Romans 9. 
But in speaking of salvation, he says, So it, then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Salvation isn't of our will or of our actions, willing or running, but it is of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Why did God do what God did? Well, he loved Israel. Well, that might be the case, and that is even the case. But ultimately, the whole fiasco in Egypt, the raising up of Pharaoh, the sending the plague to soften him and the lifting of the plague to harden him, the interactions with him over and over and over served to defeat him so that what? So that God's name might be declared through all the earth. Even in those actions, God was glorifying himself in the world. And God does this by using the most unlikely means that God and God alone gets the glory. By the way, if you read down beginning in verse 20 and 21, you'll see this language of the potter and the clay from Isaiah 29 again. I would say as we're here, you'll notice though, and this is a very important caveat, and we'll hit it in 30 seconds and move off of it. The verbiage regarding this potter and his interaction with those that are saved is active, and his interaction with those who are not saved is passive. And that is a very point, uh, important point to make. What am I saying? I'm saying that God doesn't have to make wicked people wicked. They're wicked people in Adam. And so as we read, when he gets to the specific explanation of the potter's interactions with the lump and the clay, God endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Who fitted them? Adam. That's passive. And he makes known the riches of his glory unto the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. That's active. With the children of God, God is active... With those who are left in their sins, God is passive. He leaves them where Adam put them. And we'll move on from that quickly. As we think about this concept of God, for His glory, exalting us in moments of weakness, using unlikely means, I want to read for you just a few passages of 2 Corinthians. First of all, in chapter 11, Paul mentions his sufferings. And we've mentioned these many times recently in our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Verses 18 through 30, we won't tarry long on this, but Paul says, Seeing that many glory after the flesh, well, I'll glory also. And he begins to speak about the things that he suffers and talks about how men glory in their accomplishments. I'm going to glory in my infirmities. He speaks about his infirmities and he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. He's not literally bragging, but he's speaking as a fool would speak. I am more in labors, more abundantly, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Not many other places left to go, Paul, and be in peril, right? In perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings and cold and nakedness. 
And beside all of those things which are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Verse 30, I must needs, if I must needs glory, I will glory in those things which confirm my, or concern my infirmities. Why? Why glory in infirmities, Paul? Go to chapter 12. He speaks of a man who had a great vision called up to heaven to see things that were not lawful to be uttered. That doesn't mean it's illegal. It means that it's unlawful in the sense like gravity is a law, like thermodynamics is a law. So is it unlawful to share with carnal mortal man the glory, the grandeur, the splendor of heaven. And he speaks of this man and this vision. And he says, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself will I glory not, but in my infirmities. I'm not going to glory in the things that I get right, in the things that I'm blessed to experience. I'm going to glory in my infirmities. Why? Keep reading. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me that which he seeth me to be, or that which he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. In other words, be lifted up. It's so easy to be lifted up when God blesses you as a gospel minister. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul had an affliction. What is the affliction? We simply don't know. Some people believe that Paul had a health problem. And he prayed to God three times and, and he begs God, take it from me, and God doesn't take it from him. Some people believe that Paul had guilt over the terrible sins of his past and Satan's messenger comes to buffet him to remind him of his sinful past. Does Satan ever send a messenger to remind you of your sinful past? He besought God three times that it might depart the messenger of Satan. And God said unto him, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew something about the overruling providential grace of God that in our moments of affliction, in our moments of suffering, that's when God grants the greatest strength and many times the greatest victory. Now let's think about this for just a moment. God's strength, first of all, is made perfect in weakness. When you are in your moments of affliction, that is when God is most opt to work in marvelous, encouraging, strengthening, and amazing ways. In our country, we want to avoid these at all costs. And in Paul's life, he said, it's in those moments when I feel the presence of God the strongest. Now, many times God gives us victory in these moments, but we don't always have victory. We don't always beat the cancer. We don't always survive the stroke. Many times we do, and many times you have, but we don't always. And so what is the strength to be given in the weakness in those moments when God lifts us up in His strength to feel His presence, 
to strengthen our faith even in losing our lives in those moments when the illness does have the final victory over our flesh. The strength that we have as we walk with Christ is greater than the strength that we ever experienced when we were healthy and when we were whole. And the closeness that we have with Him cannot be contrasted to the good times of health. It doesn't mean always that the affliction is taken away. Sometimes it means a great faith is given to withstand the trial. And all of this works for His glory. Now time won't permit us to give you a lot of examples of this. But this has been the story of God's interaction with man from the beginning of time. You go back through Hebrews 11 and read the backstories of every champion in that chapter and you'll see that they began many times as a trembler or a doubter, someone who had to pray for great faith, someone who didn't have all the strength that they needed. And God raised them up for incredible victories. Just a few short ones. What does God tell Israel in Deuteronomy? Thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. You were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondsmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. A group of slaves in bondage through the power and the providence of God defeated the most powerful superpower, most powerful nation in the world at the time. And it wasn't just that they escaped. God drowned Pharaoh and his host in the sea. He took out the leader and the military. And when they sent them out, they gave them all gold and jewelry and stuff for the journey. God overruling the situation and granting strength and weakness. How about David? Overlooked shepherd boy used to slaughter a giant. How about David's son Solomon? We read about the sin of David with Bathsheba, but to that union later came Solomon, who God would use as the most wise king over Israel in their entire history, even to build the house of God, the temple of God. Read the backstories of the apostles. They were unlearned men of no religious pedigree, fishermen, political reformers, tax collectors, what did they have to offer? The only one of them with religious pedigree was the Apostle Paul. What's Paul's backstory? The greatest persecutor of the first century church, yea, the chief of sinners himself, and God used him to pin the New Testament strength in weakness. The greatest example, and as we like to share with you often, that a gospel preacher needs to take whatever subject he has and run as quickly as possible to the cross. We're there. What looked to be 
an absolute, complete, and utter failure was the greatest victory in the history of the universe. Our Lord Jesus was arrested, beaten, scourged, nailed to a tree, gave up the ghost, buried in a tomb, and on the third day rose again victorious, God glorifying himself through the most unlikely of means that no flesh should glory in his presence.